The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 25 to 31. Again, John 14 verses 25 to 31. You know, it's been a year since I gave up preaching after 30-some years. And I'll be honest, I miss it. But I don't miss it as much as I would if I didn't know that God has got everything calendared according to his perfect plan. And also, I'm a huge fan of my replacements. Pastor Brian is an excellent expositor. On other occasions, Pastor Bill does a great job. So if they were terrible preachers, it'd be a different story. But instead, I have learned so much, and I so enjoy listening to their preaching. So I'm very thankful to the Lord on this kind of anniversary. Although I can't believe it's been a whole year. Time goes so fast. I joke that I need a calendar that goes Saturday, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Friday. Because the days just go so by so fast. But God, as I say, he owns and knows the calendar, and that's what matters. So from John chapter 14, let's pick up with verse 25. This is Jesus talking. And he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place. So that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for this time and For the gifts you've given our pastor, give us open ears and hearts to pay close attention to what I already know is a very reassuring, very helpful, um, peacemaking message. Continue to teach us all things by your Holy Spirit, as you said in this text, you would, for your glory. 
And in your son's name, I pray this. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to you as well, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Does Jesus seem distant to you? Does he does his words do these words bounce off of you and have little effect? Or when you hear them, do they penetrate your heart? Do they reassure you of God's presence and his sovereign purpose in your life? I I hope that's the case, that they are very special to you. But sometimes, you know, we do have a, a a problem, a threat to our peace, and one of them is that Jesus is not physically with us. And so we might have this sense of absence. Uh, this morning I want us to think about peace, to think about the peace that Jesus gives. What is the peace that Jesus gives us? And then I want to think about the threats to our peace. And Jesus implies that there are Three threats to peace here. One is his absence. Another is an unloving world. And a third is Satan. So to understand the peace of Jesus, it's important for us to think about, to think rightly about Jesus himself. If you're a Christian, then Jesus should be more to you than a person from the first century. You should have a sense of his presence that he knows you and is with you through the Holy Spirit. You should know that he is God, that he is alive, that he's a real person who knows you better than you know you. You should know that he's unlimited in his power to accomplish good in your life. And so when Jesus says, don't be afraid, and my peace I give to you, Let the reality of who this is, who this is that's speaking to you, let this sink in. So if you're struggling, if and we all have times of struggle and the lack of peace, we need to remember that he's given us his word, that he sent the Spirit to open our eyes and to teach us, that he has given us his word, which is an unlimited resource of peace. He knows the storms of your life, and he's promised his peace. He knew the trouble that his disciples would soon face, and he reassures them that even though he will not be with them physically, he'll send the Holy Spirit who will give them his peace. Jesus doesn't say... um, He doesn't say these words to them unaware of what's going to happen to them or to you. He's not incapable to keep his promises. He's not weak, but maybe well-meaning. No, this is the same person who cried out in the storm, peace, be still, and the waves and the sea became calm. Peace. This is the same Jesus who declares to you, if you belong to him, my peace I give to you. 
He says this to his disciples, knowing that they would soon see their master tortured and, and crucified and dead. He says this to his disciples, knowing that they would feel like abandoned and in the moment hopeless, like orphans. He says this knowing that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit and they're going to be empowered to preach and build the church, but they're also going to die horrible deaths. Deaths because they are following Jesus. Jesus says this to them knowing that they're going to be mocked, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to face mobs and stonings. Jesus knows all of this. And he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I'm with you. And how those words, you know, think if if you were them and experienced the different things that they experienced, how those words must have continually come to mind and reassured them and strengthened them in the middle of, of conflict and suffering. And these words are meant for you as well. Jesus gives his peace, a peace, a peace that's different from the world's peace. His peace is not temporary. It's not conditional. It's not founded on the shaky ground of ever-changing opinions and desires of people. If you can't control life's circumstances, and, and ultimately you can't, then the only way for true peace is to go to the one who can. Jesus can. Jesus speaks to the wind and calms the storm. He is sovereign over all things. And so his peace is something we can count on for all eternity. What a great word from our Savior. And aren't you thirsty for peace? Don't you crave to have true peace? I mean, we look forward to a day when there will be ultimate peace, but here and now... Aren't you tired of the division? Aren't you tired of the politics and the social justice debates and the gender issues and vaccines and masks and the government's place in all of it? Are you tired? I'm tired of it. (laughs) And yet, this is the reality in which we live. We live in an arrogant, hypocritical, double-standard, sinfully divided time. And as troubling as this may be, what's even more concerning is when we see some of this bleeding into the attitudes of the church and how we treat each other. So we need peace, not just any peace. We need the peace that Jesus gives to his own. So much, think of it, when you read through the New Testament, pay attention, so much of the New Testament emphasizes the importance of unity within the church. So yes, we're sinners, and there will be some things that we just don't agree on, but if we're truly brothers and sisters in Christ, there should be some level of peace. There should be a point of moving on or forgiving or overlooking after we've made attempts, and we are just know through discernment we're not going to see eye to eye. Where's the wisdom in recognizing there's a time for coming back to our unity in the gospel? And this isn't to say that we ignore the important issues of our day. We, we are told in Scripture to do justice. But we're also called to love kindness 
and to walk humbly with our God. So there's an interesting balance there. I'm thankful for people in church history that fought for orthodoxy and matters of justice, but we need to always remember who we are, who we represent, and that he's called us to go and make disciples of him. Him, the one who walked humbly with God, the Prince of Peace. I read something um, the other day from R.C. Sproul that just struck me as incredibly profound and, and also really challenging. And I hope it will be for you as well. He speaks of verse 20, which is a really interesting verse, hard for us to really comprehend, where Jesus said, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What is he talking about there? Well, here's what R.C. wrote concerning this. The New Testament emphasizes the mystical union of the believer with Christ. And just as Christ is in the Father, so the believer is in Christ and he is in the believer. For the church, this means that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And if I'm a Christian, I'm in Christ. As a result, we have a mystical union, not only with Christ, but with each other. And that union transcends all other human relationships. This, is, this has staggering implications. If I hate someone who is in Christ, I'm not only sinning against that person, I'm sinning against Christ himself. How can I despise one in whom Christ resides? That's why we're called to have an extraordinary love for one another. If we cannot love another person for his or her own sake, we must do it for Christ's sake. And that really jumped out at me. If I can't love a person for his or her own sake, I need to love that person for Christ's sake. Loving the person because Christ indwells him or her. This mystical union is the foundation for a special love and communion in the body of Christ. That is profound. And the truth is, it's really hard. Um, maybe even impossible, we might say, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Because Jesus said, my peace I give to you. If you're in Christ, then you can love. Because Jesus gave you his peace. Even in the midst of your right convictions, it's not only possible, but we must have his peace, his unity, his love for one another. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be best buddies with the people that you disagree with, but it should mean that you value them, that you're kind to them, that you're maybe even pleasant and do something nice for them, something to express love for the sake of Jesus who loved you, Jesus who loved you, even when hmm, there was a disagreeable relationship going on even when you were his enemy. So let's think about peace. What is this peace that Jesus gives to us? One way we experience this peace is that because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we are now at peace with God. We are no longer at war with him. And we really were at war with God prior to being um, 
one of his own prior to our faith in Jesus. We really were at war with him. God's word tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against our maker, we were at war with God. But because of the obedience and sacrificial death of Jesus, we are justified by faith. We are forgiven, and now we are given peace with God. A second way Jesus gives us peace is in the blessing of knowing and experiencing God's his loving presence in our lives. We receive this peace because Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to us, ministering God's grace to us in, in day-to-day living. Jesus is with you by the Holy Spirit. He speaks to you through his word. And the Holy Spirit enables you to hear, to see God's revelation of himself. It's transforming. The Spirit indwells us and works his fruit, his, his characteristics into our lives. And one of those characteristics is peace. The circumstances of life make us weary. And they tempt us to to lose hope. But the blessing of peace floods over us as as we read the word of God. As the spirit bears witness with our spirit. Giving us reassuring peace that we are a child of God. When we're dealing with health problems. And our bodies are feeling like they're giving out. And we feel like we're wasting away. The Holy Spirit ministers to us through his word. Reminding us that he's at work on our inner selves. That this work is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. We read this in God's word. And in that time of discouragement when we read this, Jesus gives us his peace. When we're suffering... And we don't understand why. Jesus gives us his peace, telling us that he he withholds no good thing from us. So somehow this is good. Or it's working good. Telling us that he's there. He's working for a good purpose. We can trust him. And in this, we experience the peace of Jesus. His peace is always there for you. Pick up and read. Pick up and read his word. Pray before you do and ask the Spirit to open your eyes that you may behold wondrous things. It's not a a natural um, exercise like any other book or textbook that you can just read and really comprehend and really understand. A natural man can understand to some level but God's word tells us there's something else going on there. There's a, there's a deeper spiritual, we need the Holy Spirit to show us truths from God's word. So we can expect this peace, but Jesus also knows that there are going to be some things that threaten our peace. The first threat to, has to do with an unloving world. The world will both hate us because it hates Jesus, and it will offer a sense of peace, or maybe we'd call it a counterfeit peace. The disciples, they would 
you know, they would quickly realize the world's hostility toward followers of Christ. And all throughout history, and even today, we see a violent hatred and a persecution of Christianity. And there are also attempts at this counterfeit peace. I like how James Boyce kind of summed up the kind of peace that the world offers to us. He says it has these characteristics. It's insincere since the motives seldom match the words. It's impotent since this peacemaking seldom achieves more than a hostile truce. It's scanty, always giving less than was possible. And he says it's selfish, often giving with a true desire of receiving in return. It's as the prophet Jeremiah complained about Jerusalem's worldly leaders, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Peace, we see in the world peace treaties being signed that aren't genuine. Lasting peace is never achieved. And when there's a time of worldly peace, how is it won? It's typically won through coercion, through force. And ironically, one of the great eras of world peace was the Pax Romana of Augustus Caesar. And it came after his conquest of Western Europe. And when Augustus returned, what did he do? He built an altar to peace, placing it on the field of Mars, the Roman god of war. And the Roman historian Tacitus commented, they make a desolation and call it peace. The worldly pattern of peace, one that applies to our country as well, is that peace has to do with power exerted at the expense of others. So, if your party is in control and getting its way, you have a sense of peace. But then wait four years, and if you're in the minority then it seems like the sky is falling. But think of Jesus' peace. Instead of making peace for himself at the expense of others, he gave peace to his own people at his own expense. Instead of an altar of peace made of marble and built on a field of war, his was a wooden cross on Calvary's hill. Putting your hope in the world's peace is ultimately a false hope that will never compare with the peace that Jesus gives. The peace of the world is insincere, while the peace Jesus gives came at the cost of his own blood. The world's peace is impotent, while Jesus actually achieved for us true and lasting reconciliation with God through his death on the cross. The world's peace is given scantily. They skimp while Jesus gave everything, his own life, his, his body for us. The world gives with selfish motives, benefiting those who are in power, while the peace Jesus gives is a result of self-sacrifice, humbly giving of himself, graciously benefiting others at his personal expense. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life, for his friends. And we're assured of this lasting peace, not like the world. It's lasting peace because God's word tells us the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If you're in Christ, you never have to worry about the peace 
you have with God. It's irrevocable. God's gift to you, his calling over your life, it's eternal. The peace that Jesus gives you is not temporary. It's not based on a change of political party or society's redefinition of truth. No, God's peace, his his promises to us remain because in him there is no variation. There is no shadow due to change. The peace of the world rests on finite, mortal, sinful men. And God's peace rests on who? Rests on Jesus. Another threat to our peace has to do with Christ's physical absence. Jesus knows. He knows that his physical absence will be something different for these disciples, that it will threaten their peace, and that it will also be a question for many today. But look at what Jesus says right after telling them not to be afraid and that he'll give them peace. First, he addresses this threat by reminding them, you heard me say to you, I I told you this before, I'm going away, but I'm, I'm coming back. I'll come to you. But then look at what Jesus says. He addresses this threat by saying something really unexpected. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So, so first, Jesus says what? He says, I'm going to give you peace. Don't be afraid. Yes, I'm going away, which I know will threaten your peace, but but I'll come to you. And then he says, basically, if you love me, you'll be happy that I'm going because I'm going to the Father, for he is greater than I. Now, the first few things make sense, but we struggle. What is he saying? What is he saying in that second part? He says, you know, basically, you know, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. You would have rejoiced at this news. So let's think about that. Let's unpack this a bit. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, instead of being a threat to your peace, my going should make you happy for me. I'm going back to glory where I belong. It's time to celebrate. And when you think about it, when you celebrate, you tend to have a, a sense of peace. Think of when a, a loved one dies, and you know that they belong to Jesus. And you know that in that very moment, they really are incredible. They really are in the presence of Jesus. They really are without sin, completely at peace more joyful than they ever have been. No more possibilities for worry or sorrow or pain. And when we know that this really is true, not just a nice thing that we tell ourselves to cheer ourselves up, but really is true for the person that we love, yes, we're going to be sorry. We're going to have sorrow for ourselves. But we also have joy for them. And this Reality, this truth, gives us peace. And that's a really, that's the best I could do. 
as an illustration, but it's a weak one. And here's why it's weak. It's weak because, unlike us, Jesus came from glory. He's deserving of glory. And he's returning to a position where he knows the incredible glory of the Father. If we look forward to a glory that we've never known before, how much more would Jesus, the one who humbled himself and by becoming a lowly servant, a man, and now he's returning to what is much more fitting to his greatness. Here's how D.A. Carson described it. He said it's as Jesus returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, and to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory. So I want to be clear about the ending of verse 28 when it says, where, where Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. Here's a, here's a little bit of a verse that Unitarians will jump on, Jehovah Witnesses will, will twist and try to make you think that Jesus is saying that he's not God, that he's not divine. Ignoring all of the verses where Jesus clearly claims his own deity, ignoring all of the New Testament that declares that he is God, never mind that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So clearly that the Jews are picking up rocks, understanding exactly what he meant. So then, what did Jesus mean? What what does he mean here? John Calvin, I think this is really fitting for what I just described as far as the joy of Jesus returning to a state of, of glory, a glory that he knew. John Calvin gives a good explanation. He says that when Jesus says that the Father is greater, he does not here make a comparison between the divinity of the Father and his own, nor between his own human nature and the divine essence of the Father, but rather between his present state and the heavenly glory to which he would soon afterwards be received. Now that makes sense in the context of, you should be rejoicing, Jesus saying. You, Jesus saying, you should be rejoicing that I, God the Son, who humbled myself by taking on human flesh, becoming a servant, taking on the shame and sacrificing myself for you, you should be rejoicing because you love me. You should be celebrating that I'm returning to this greater state that the Father has. And oh, Jesus knows the, the peace that we'll have at this point in time, at this completed work, it'll be so much better for you, he's saying. He understands. His physical absence may seem like a a threat to our peace, but in reality, it's a great benefit to us. It's the beginning of a new era of grace, much better than anything before. His ascension to the right hand of the Father, it communicates it is finished. His work is done. It communicates that the Father approves and accepts the work of Jesus accomplished for us. And let's not forget that Christ's absence does not threaten our peace because the Holy Spirit is sent. He's sent to be our paraclete, our helper, our advocate. The Holy Spirit 
who, remember, is not an it. He is not a force or a power that we tap into and manipulate for our own ends. No, he's a divine, a divine person, co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. He's sent in Jesus' name to be our helper, to be our advocate, to give us the very peace of Jesus. And what a helper he is. Have you ever wondered, you know, we read through the Gospels, and so, so many times we read of this scenario with the disciples, and we're just like, what, what are they thinking? How could they not believe? They just witnessed this. How can they not see it? How could they not believe? How many times does Jesus have to tell them and they don't remember? Have you ever wondered how in the world did these forgetful, dull, sometimes unbelieving disciples, they suddenly remember and they write the detail, the details, the events, the teachings, the dialogue in the four Gospels? Well, Jesus said in verse 26, he says to them, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's how. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, he breathed scripture out through these dull and forgetful people, causing them to remember all of the dialogue, all of the events, all of the teachings of Jesus He's saying, don't worry, don't be afraid. Peace I leave with you. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. He'll be your helper after I leave. And this peace is not only to them, to these original disciples, it's also to you. It applies to us. As the Spirit brings all things to their minds that need to be written as God's Word, likewise, He tells us that God He tells us what God is saying in his word. We need the Spirit to to show us what God is saying in his word. The Holy Spirit teaches us through the word of Christ. Without the ministry of the Spirit to teach us God's word, we would be completely in the dark. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, teaches that the natural person, the person without the Holy Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their folly to him, he is not able, not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit to understand the Word of God, to rightly understand it and apply it and see him for who he is. So we discern the life-changing truth of God's Word, not not by natural reason, but only by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's work of inspiration to the writers of Scripture It's done. It's complete. And now his work is to open our eyes to the word of God because we can only rightly discern it through him. There's no ongoing inspiration to write scripture. God's word is complete. So if anyone steps up and says that they have another word from the Lord, a special revelation, uh, you'll hear it said in a lot of churches, sadly, uh, a word of prophecy. And if that word is something other than them simply reciting Scripture, then that person is either self-deceived and ignorant of biblical truth, or they're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to exert authority that's not theirs. The Spirit comes in the name of Jesus, and all of Scripture points to and is fulfilled 
by Jesus. It's finished. And don't worry, there will, there will, there will always be something for you to learn. How many times have you you've read God's Word, maybe a section of Scripture, a dozen times before? And then that 13th time, you're like, wow, I never saw that before. The Spirit opened your eyes to that truth. There's always something that he's going to show you sovereignly at the appointed time that you need it, his peace. So an application of this truth is that we need to, we need to pray. We need to pray before we read, before we listen to a teaching, before we teach that the Spirit of God do the work, open our eyes to glorious truths. So if we need some peace, we need to go to God's word. We need to drink from the fountain of peace that flows from God's word. Lastly, Jesus mentions another threat to our peace in verse 30, where he describes the coming of Satan. Now, Jesus knew what was going on behind the scenes. He knew Satan's work with Judas, who betrayed him. He knew Satan's work with the, with the Jewish leaders as they're plotting for his arrest, the temple guards as they're equipping themselves and ready to arrest Jesus. It's all, Jesus knows that this is, this is the ruler of the world, Satan, working behind the scenes, plotting. Jesus knew that this was coming, and he refers to Satan as ruler of this world. Not because Satan, like in some strange Frank Peretti novel, battles, has this cosmic battle with God and and uh, uh, wrestles power away from God, but because God actually gives Satan permission. And we see this all over Scripture. Acts 2 tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was in charge. Satan may be in a position of ruling, but he does nothing without God's permission. And we see it in the story of Job. We see it even in Jesus' saying to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. So even though Satan is this roaring lion that we need to take seriously, he is a real threat. Satan is this roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is a threat, but he's no ultimate threat. He's no ultimate threat to our peace because Jesus says in verse 30, he has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. We are in Christ, and Satan has no claim on Christ. He has no ability to influence him like he influenced Adam and Eve in the garden. He has no ability to do so because there is no flaw to exploit in Jesus. There is no weakness to tempt. There is no sin to use against him. Jesus is in complete control. He knew what he was doing. He knew that through his death that he would destroy the one who had power over death. Jesus teaches that he is our peace. And even though there will be threats, threats from an unloving world, threats from the physical absence of Christ, threats from Satan's own attacks, he gives us peace. Peace in his word, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this peace will calm any storm, any storm of life. He's sovereign. And after teaching this, Jesus 
ends by saying, rise, rise, let us go from here. What a hero. I heard someone say that of Jesus years ago, and I just thought, yeah, that's the right word. He's my hero. What a leader. What a, what a peace to those who follow him. He's with us. He's with us. And when you're in the presence of when you're in the presence of greatness, of a great leader, don't you have a sense of calm, of assurance, of peace? So hear Jesus' words of peace to you, but don't let that last statement go unnoticed. Rise. Let us go from here. He gives us his peace. And these words, they summon us. They summon us to follow him wherever he goes. Even the cross, even the denial of self, even persecution or mocking or whatever. But in light of his peace, in light of the big picture and his peace, doesn't every threat just seem to lose its fangs? We are a people who can be described as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Life can be really hard, and each day has its own troubles. But keep coming back to and remembering the comfort. Remember the comfort, the hope that Jesus gives to us. Remember his good purposes. Remember that he is working in you through the Holy Spirit. Remember his promise, his promise of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious gift you have given to us in your Son, Jesus. What a grace. What a mercy to unworthy rebels like us. And this is who we were. But because of your grace, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we are now at peace with you. We are loved by you. We are actually called children of God. Ah, what a peace this should give us. And yet, you've given us more by sending the Holy Spirit to be our helper, to minister the peace of Christ through your word. Lord, help us to behold wondrous things in your word, things that will open our eyes to the hope of glory, to the confidence that you are purposefully working for our good in all things, that you withhold no good thing from us. You're sovereign over all. Lord God, may this truth continually give us the peace of Jesus when we don't understand, when we're suffering, when we're frustrated. Give us this peace, peace that comforts us, but also a peace that gives us confidence to rise and go, to follow you, to do your will. We give you praise for your glorious grace, for this peace. In Jesus' name, amen.